0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio. I'll start with a general uh, thing, which is that all universities in Australia have a very strong commitment to academic freedom. Mm-hmm. And that is actually entrenched in a number of their policies and governing statements. So, and in my view, there's no evidence of a concerted effort to undermine academic freedom, quite to the contrary. I think university managements are very sensitive to the issue of academic freedom and actually really quite quite importantly, view it as important and want to preserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, There are individual accusations that come from a variety of different directions around academic freedom. So one direction from which accusations about an undermining of academic freedom are coming, is from people who try and make the argument that Australian universities are dominated by leftists
1: mm-hmm.
0: who um, who either won't allow um, conservative-slash-liberal views to be heard in the classroom, or if they do, they either discriminate against them or punish them. So a few number of years ago, I think it was 2008 possibly, in Australia, um, some people who were running this line of argument went so far as to set up a website that purported or, or to which students could report course curricula and lecturers who they believed um, displayed this kind of bias and then subsequently these the people who believed this um, actually managed to get a Senate inquiry into... Um, allegations of bias in Australian universities and the report that issued from that inquiry, of course, was itself highly contentious and very, very ideologically divided. So what you have was a, had was a group of conservative politicians who agreed with this left-wing bias view and you had other politicians from the Labor Party and from the Greens and so on who completely disagreed with it. So the answer to the question of whether there's left-wing bias that's allegedly discriminating against conservative students and conservative academics depends entirely really on your viewpoint. So my viewpoint is that the answer to that is no, no such bias exists. Universities are by nature places of critical inquiry and by nature they will always um, examine and investigate the institutions and the structures within which we find ourselves living and working and some people misinterpret that as left-wing bias but in my view it is no such thing mm-hmm. it's absolutely not that and in fact there are also there have been some um, there's been some really good empirical research done more in the United States than in Australia on allegations of left-wing bias in the universities which show a students are very, very bad at guessing the apparent ideological leanings of their lecturers. And B, even though they're very bad at guessing what the ideological leanings of their lecturers are, the greater the gap that they perceive, so it's about perception, the greater the gap that they perceive between their lecturers' ideological leanings and their own, the more likely they are to accuse the lecturer of bias especially if they don't do as well in their assessments as they want to do. It's an easy accusation to make. Mm -hmm. And so the evidence shows that accusations of bias are flawed deeply, that come from students who allege they've been discriminated against are deeply flawed. So um, so that's that angle, that's yeah. one of the angles. Then there's another angle on encroachments on academic freedom, which has come up with the Ramsey Centre um, controversy and relatedly, the Confucius Institutes, which is the degree to which people who fund endeavours in university do or do are or are not able to influence. Either the teaching output of those endeavours or the research output of those endeavours, and again, universities are very, very strongly protective of academic freedom. So, in my view, there are no public universities in Australia do not accept money um, to that that will, so to speak, predetermine the outcome of research. So, for example, funding from an industry body into a particular either product or service that an industry offers needs to be done completely hands-off in a way that the researchers are able to find whatever findings they find from Mm -hmm. the research. Um, And so the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation has caused a big furor because the funders of that centre who wanted to give originally the ANU literally millions of dollars to run this centre... They wanted to have input into who would be hired to teach those courses. They wanted to be have input into the direction that the courses would take and the content of the course and the arguments put forward in that course. And that is a clear violation of the intellectual independence of Mm universities. A clear violation. And that's why the ANU um, in the end did not proceed with um, putting forward the Ramsey Centre.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Some people have drawn very superficial analogies between the Ramsey Centre proposal and the existence of Confucius Institutes at various universities around Australia. But to my knowledge, and this is only to my knowledge, to my knowledge, these Confucius Institutes do not have um, the say on the intellectual direction of content that is taught to students. They don't determine those things in the way that the Ramsey Centre wanted to. In fact, typically, those Confucius Institutes don't do any teaching at all. So they're really completely different entities. So that's the sort of second angle of attack on academic freedom is the suggestion um, by some that, or accusations, that sometimes money can be used to distort either teaching outcomes or research outcomes. And in both... In universities doing completely the right thing when they defend their own intellectual freedom against those kind of imposts
1: mm-hmm. um, you, you've written recently yep. about the the uni situation and the strike and and i think some of their academic staff believe that their academic freedom in, in what they teach is being impinged on with the new agreement um can you run us through that
0: well, my view is that uh, the you, there isn't clear... So I was pretty careful in how I phrased that, mm. um, that article. I said at the beginning, if the university were doing this, mm-hmm. so I used the conditional case, then mm. it would be the first time there was a strike about academic freedom. And I yeah. ended the article by saying there's actually very little evidence that the university is trying to do this. And that's my view, that mm-hmm. the um, union, I think, made it much bigger than it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the university... Has made a suggestion not to downgrade the protection of intellectual freedom or academic freedom in the agreement, but actually quite the opposite to make the the comment, the the reference in the agreement short, er, but indirect but to correlate it and link it directly to a larger governance document outside of the Enterprise Agreement and let's face it there are lots of governance decisions in Australian universities and policies that don't reside inside the Enterprise Agreement the Enterprise Agreement is only one governance document and the proposal at Melbourne was to have a very brief clause in the Enterprise Agreement on academic freedom that said we support academic freedom as outlined in this other document Mm -hmm. and then this other document has a very comprehensive comprehensive statement of what academic freedom is. So actually, in my view, what Melbourne was trying to do was trying to strengthen the protections for academic freedom by instead of having two sentences in the enterprise agreement, linking the enterprise agreement to another governance document where they had a complete and very thorough assessment of the meaning of academic freedom. Mm
1: -hmm. So what do you say to people who see that outright... But trampling on free speech is not always the case but maybe a chilling effect occurs and so it, you know it's not blatant but some academics mm. feel that their their thought or their speech you know is, there is a chilling mm. effect going on what do you think of that phenomenon
0: Um, If I can just go back a second, so Mm -hmm. I guess this is the third way in which there are the... the, I've I've already outlined two, but this is the third way in which there are allegations of limitations on academic freedom, and that's like the guy at... I think it was Central Queensland University or maybe James Cook, who claims to have been silenced because his views are against the scientific consensus on climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And, of course, the university disagrees entirely and says that he has not been... Uh, suffered job repercussions from that. He suffered job repercussions from violating a code of conduct. So, again, mm-hmm. that's far from clear cut. So, is there a chilling effect? Um, firstly, uh, allegations of chilling effects are very easy to make and very hard to substantiate. I realise that methodologically studying a chilling effect is a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. But um, for exa- I can give you examples of... Um, free speech literature that has evidenced a chilling effect. For example, again from the United States, there have been surveys done, particularly in in Muslim communities, about their use of the internet in the wake of the Snowden revelations about the kind of surveillance techniques that are being used in the United States. And there was demonstrated evidence of a chilling effect to the extent that Survey respondents said that they were much more careful about what sites they went to and that they had stopped putting certain items into search engines because they were scared that they might get caught up in the surveillance net. So there you have got demonstrated evidence of a chilling effect. In Australia, we have very little evidence of a chilling effect on anything and in fact it's pretty hilarious that people like Tony Abbott, Kevin Donnelly and John Howard, we have some of the loudest voices in. And sorry, and the radio guy um, um, Alan Jones
1: Mm.
0: um, who were at that book launch the other day claimed to have been silenced when they have incredibly powerful and strong voices and they're continuously heard on anything, that any political issue at all and they have have their power, their voices are amplified far beyond that of the ordinary person in the street. So it's pretty brave for them to claim a chilling effect given the amplification they have available to their own personal voices. So is there a chilling effect in Australia? There's there's no evidence of one. Mm -hmm. So I did some research on... uh, anti-vilification laws in Australia with a guy called Professor Luke McNamara who's at the University of New South Wales and he and I did a large study into the long-term effects of 30 years of anti-vilification laws in Australia. The first one was introduced in 1989. And one of the questions we asked in that study was How, is there any evidence of a chilling effect because opponents of Things like Section 18C, for example, always say this has a chilling effect, this has a chilling effect. We found no evidence whatsoever of a chilling effect. Quite to the contrary, there's no evidence at all that people feel unable to speak on certain topics. So, the premise of that book um, that you told me about, the Kevin Donnelly, Tony Abbott, Alan Jones um, book launch the other day, the premise there that people aren't allowed to say things anymore is just not true.
1: Mm-hmm. So should academics be free to opine or discuss any topic or any issue with with no limits?
0: Yes, because it's up to the academic to decide. The so there have one of the arguments that's been put forward in the past is academics should only speak on their areas of expertise, but it's very hard to define what an academic's area of expertise is and we spend our entire lives Doing, researching the evidence and looking at the evidence base. So in my view, it's actually not up to the institution, being the university, and certainly not up to the government certainly not up to our employers to decide what we have expertise to speak on. It's up to us to decide what we have expertise to speak on. And Mm -hmm. so really it's up to the academic to make that decision. Now, I personally wouldn't talk about something I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. You could ring me about agricultural policy and I'd say, I'm sorry, but I'm really not qualified to speak on that. And I would refer you elsewhere. So academics are generally speaking, most of us are very sensible people Mm -hmm. and most of us restrict our public comment to areas in which we have done research and we have something important to say that is Mm evidence-based.
1: But there's nothing taboo. In your eyes, there's no taboo subjects for academics to study, shall we say, not necessarily in your own field, but are there any taboo subjects to teach, to to talk about?
0: Not in my view, no. I mean, we all have to be sensible, and, Mm -hmm. of course, no single academic gets to decide what gets taught entirely because Mm -hmm. there are... There are guidelines and, and as the, each individual unit, like for example our school, Um, Any school in any university looks overall at the content of the courses that are on offer and we seek to make sure that we're covering the bases in terms of what's important in the discipline and we try and, you know, so occasionally adjustments are made to courses and, you know, there's a lot of collegiality that goes on in making those decisions. It's very rarely up to an individual academic to make all of those decisions entirely on their own. Yeah. Um,
1: So how does this idea you know about free speech in unis how do you see that tying into the wider societal discussion we're having in australia at the moment about freedom of speech you know you talked about 18 religious freedoms is this just politicians yeah. kind of latching onto that and making that a wider battleground or how do you see them linking
0: well it's very interesting so 20 years ago when i started my career and i said that my was free speech, I heard a few people look at me quizzically and say, that's interesting. Free speech isn't really a political science topic. Nobody ever worries about it. And 20 years later, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the reverse is the case. At this point in time, it's very true that free speech has become a really central component of public debates mm-hmm. over everything from same-sex marriage to universities to political correctness to whatever. And so it's become very, very central component of political debates. I think that they're linked, the debate about academic freedom in universities and the debate about free speech outside universities are linked to that extent, that they draw on this kind of zeitgeist interest Mm -hmm. in freedom of speech. But my concern is that the zeitgeist interest in free speech is being pushed by, and I don't know if you read my piece in Policy Forum about the weaponisation of free speech. I haven't. But my concern at the moment is that Um, The people who most vociferously and most often and most loudly claim that their free speech is under attack are the ones who also demonstrate very little understanding of the responsibilities that come with the right of free speech, and free speech, like any right, carries with it commensurate responsibilities, and they pay very little attention to the free speech of others. So, for example, opponents of Section 18C will say vociferously that Section 18C is an infringement of their right to free speech. But when somebody um, says, well, you should be careful how, you know, it's okay to, for example, express... Um, opposition to same sex marriage but you but it would be beneficial to the community if the way in which you expressed that opposition didn't vilify gay people okay so it's okay to express opposition to same sex marriage in a in a in a constructive way that doesn't harm other people but actually, you're you're expressing your views in a way that harms other people. They dismiss that altogether, and they say, no, no, I have a right to say whatever I want. But then, when somebody tries to say that their religion might be behaving badly, they say, oh, I've got a right to free speech on my religion. How dare you intervene? So mm-hmm. they have the people who are using free speech as a in this vociferous way in public debate actually have a very, very superficial and narrow idea of free speech in their heads. That basically comes down to, I have a right to say what I want. And that is not a free speech right, in my opinion. That is just the loudest get to speak.